Well, open up in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2, and I'm glad you can tune in and welcome whoever you are, wherever you are. It is imperative these days that we look at the Word of God together. That's what we need. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. You could begin turning there. Some have wondered if mirrors, that is reflections, contribute to anxiety in our lives. It's an interesting thought. A man named Mark Pendergrast wrote a book called Mirror, Mirror, A History of the Human Love Affair with Reflection. And in that book, he said this, many schizophrenics react oddly to mirrors, sometimes staring at them for hours. Curiously, there are no blind schizophrenics. And in the single known case where a long-term schizophrenic went blind, she went into remission within a few days. And so the question has been asked, does seeing oneself, the ability to gaze at your own reflection, create a kind of anxiety? Is there something unsettling about seeing yourself? Uh, Psychologists and philosophers alike have agreed that people resist evaluating themselves. They resist looking at the mirror of their lives and seeing what's actually there. Uh, Psychologists and philosophers like Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Jung, Adler are all agreeing that human beings are fiercely resistant to self-evaluation, to real, honest, looking in the mirror and seeing yourself with your flaws, with your problems as they really are. Now, what's interesting about these writers is that they can't all agree on what it is that we're trying to avoid, uh, what it is that we're trying to deny. Why can't we just look in the mirror and see all the problems of our lives and the issues that we have and the sins we've committed Why are we always trying to defend ourselves? Why are we so resistant to seeing ourselves for as we really are? Why do we always tend to believe the absolute best about ourselves? Philosophies can't give us an answer, but Christians have the answer. And the answer is, of course, is that we know that the Bible teaches that human beings are fiercely resistant to seeing themselves the way God sees them. God sees humanity as his, his creation that was made in his image. And so there's an inherent value and dignity that all humanity shares. And, and we have no problem seeing that. We like to parade and celebrate the goodness of humanity. However, what we are fiercely resistant to seeing is our own sin in light of a holy God who created us. We are desperately afraid. We resist it with every fiber in our being. We don't want to admit the hard reality that we're not actually very good people. And we will go great lengths, often even without even uh, saying it in words, to defend our own goodness. I bet when you're on the road, and there's all kinds of people breaking traffic laws, you believe that you're the best driver on the road. If life's a road, you're the best driver out there, or at least one of the best. This is just how we think. 
We tend to walk through life as if it's a carnival of mirrors, and we choose the mirror that we like best, and we assume that's who we are. It's actually terrifying if you think about this. It's terrifying that we are so blind to our own failures. Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 2 is actually terrifying when you think about what it says. It says, every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Every one of us, every person, it is part of our DNA as fallen creatures We think we're more right than we actually are. We think we're more wise than we actually are. We think we're more clever than we actually are, more important than we actually are, more holy than we actually are, because we are fiercely resistant to seeing ourselves accurately the way God sees us. We would much rather deceive ourselves or ignore our faults so as to continue believing the best about ourselves. This text that we're going to look at this morning is going to show us that seeing ourselves accurately is a matter of life and death. That it is absolutely critical that we see ourselves rightly. That we tear away the masks And we learn to actually evaluate ourselves the way God intends for us to evaluate ourselves. So there we are in Mark chapter 2. I want to start at the end, and then we're going to go back around, okay? So we're going to start in verse 17. I want to read uh, verse 17 and then go back and say what happened to lead Jesus to say what he says in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, Jesus, when he heard it, we're going to see what the it is here in a little bit, when he heard what they said, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pause and just think about what he's saying. This is a, an axiom. This is a statement of truth about who Jesus is and who comes to Jesus. He says, those who are well, that is those who see themselves as spiritually healthy, spiritually good, spiritually content, fundamentally okay, the people who self-evaluate and they come to the conclusion that all is well, those people never go to the doctor. On the other hand, the people who are sick, the people who evaluate themselves as needy, the people who evaluate themselves as broken and in need of help, those are the ones who call the doctor. And the spiritual analogy that Jesus is using here is that if you assess yourself as fundamentally good, as fundamentally okay, as spiritually healthy, you will miss out on Jesus. You will not be right with God, and you will miss out ultimately on his kingdom. That is heavy. And on the flip side, if you know yourself to be sick, you understand yourself to be a sinner, 
You know that you have no righteousness, and it grieves you. You feel it. There's a sense of guilt and shame, such to the degree that it causes you to cry out to the great physician, Jesus. In that case, you can be saved. You can be saved. That's the point of this text. But I want to show you how Jesus gets there. We're going to move through the text in three parts, and then we're going to see again how this statement of Jesus applies to the whole context of what's going on. So let's look at this in three parts. First, the call of Levi. Verse 13, the call of Levi. He, that's Jesus, went out again by, beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Here's Jesus. Again, he's walking beside the Sea of Galilee. This is the same place where he called Simon and Andrew in chapter 1. And what's happening? The crowd is gathering around. They're all coming to him. This is another evidence of the immense popularity of Jesus. If you were to look in chapter 1, you would see that a crowd begins following Jesus' every move. Chapter 1, verse 28, it says his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. In chapter 1, verse 33, the whole city was gathered at the door. Uh, after the leper is healed, in verse 45 of chapter 1, it says this, that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places as people were coming to him from every quarter. In the beginning of chapter 2, remember the story of the four men bringing their, their paralyzed friend to Jesus, and they go to the house, and they can't even get inside because the crowd has so bustled around Jesus. There's no more space for any new people to show up. So this is the context. Jesus is walking along the sea, and what's he doing with this massive crowd he's teaching? This was a common thing for rabbis to do. They didn't just set up lecture halls and teach that way. In the everyday moments of life, they were teaching. And so as the crowds follow him, because he's hugely popular, he's teaching them as he walks by the sea. Verse 14, and as he passed by, he saw Levi. Levi is uh, actually more well-known as Matthew. There's an entire book of the Bible, the first gospel, written by Matthew. But here he is called by the name Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth, at the tax booth. Now, don't envision Jesus walking along the sea and there's some kind of lemonade stand there and Levi's sitting there. This would have been more of a tax office. This would have been a bustling trade route in the area of Capernaum where those who were fishermen, there's a huge fishing trade in this region, the fishermen who are transferring their goods would have had to be taxed. And so Levi, of all the different places that you could be a tax collector, is actually in a place that is particularly uh, popular, busy. Lots of people would have been passing through, and Levi would have had a lucrative business there collecting taxes. And so he's there. He's got this big tax office set up and on a major caravan route by the sea where goods and transport are being taxes. Jesus, Jesus sees the building over there where Levi would have been working. He was at the booth. He was at his job. He was in the middle of conducting business. And Jesus, it doesn't say clearly uh, what he was teaching at this point. We're just going to assume it's what he has been teaching, the gospel of the kingdom, the call to repentance, but it seems that he pauses. He sees Levi. 
He passed by, verse 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He's sitting in his tax booth, and Jesus, above the din of the crowd, calls out, follow me. And Levi immediately knows that Jesus has called him. And it says he rose and followed him. I believe that this would have sent shockwaves through the entire crowd. They would have thought, of all the people there that Jesus could choose, Levi at the tax booth would have been the last. I, I know that you have probably heard something about tax collectors. Tax collectors were, were despised by the Jews for two reasons. One is they were seen as backstabbers, traitors to their people. Rome ruled over Israel at this time, and a tax collector essentially was working for Rome. And they would be working against their own people, inciting with the enemy. For that reason, they were despised. But for another reason they were despised, they were despised because when they taxed their own people, they would take more than what was required. Okay? So the tax collectors were hated by the Jews. They were seen as the lowest of the low, outcasts of societies. They would not have been welcome in any of the normal, faithful Jewish gatherings. And Jesus here, as the whole crowd gathers around, singles out not a nice Pharisee, not a well-known and well-liked scribe. No, they are not called, but a tax collector a turncoat, a backstabber, a cheat, a liar. As Levi is a bad dude. Levi is a liar. Levi does bad things. He cheats and he steals. He's working against his own people. Under the cover of Rome, he's able to bilk his own people out of their money with no threat of ever being punished for it. He's making all kinds of money using the people around him for his own gain. Jesus calls him, follow me. What does he do? He rises up, he follows him. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 5 says he left everything and followed Jesus. For him to do this is monumental. This is, this is actually different from what the fishermen did in chapter 1, Simon and Andrew. When, when Jesus asked them to, take up, to, to, to follow him and he's going to make them fishers of men, they, they left immediately. But fishing was a business that you could jump right back into if things didn't go well. If Jesus turns out to be something that's a big failure, they can go back and start fishing anytime they wanted. But for Levi to leave the tax booth is to quit his job without any hope of ever getting it back again. So this is a permanent decision. What happens in the moment, Levi has to make a no-turning-back decision. And I believe what's happening in the moment is Jesus calls out to Levi, hey, you, you sinner, Jesus would have known who this guy was. He would have known his sin. And he says, follow me. Levi has to make this decision. And I believe that in the moment that Jesus called him, Levi assessed himself, looked at his own life, and he thought to himself, I, I'm sick. 
I can't change myself. I can't fix myself. Here I am in an occupation that I've been cheating and lying and stealing. And here is the Savior calling me to follow him. And he recognizes in that moment this great sense of need, this great sense of I can be forgiven, I can be maybe helped by this man, Jesus. He doesn't fully understand all of the gospel. In that moment, all he understands is that Jesus, the Messiah, is calling him. He wants to go. And so he goes. He he leaves everything. He leaves his job. He, He leaves his finances, his career. He leaves that, and he follows Jesus. I think it's fascinating when you think about this. Levi's in the middle of his sinful enterprise. He's in the middle of his tax collecting. He's sitting down at the tax booth, the text says, when Jesus calls him. And I find this to be immensely instructive because Jesus can call you right in the middle of your sin to come out of that sin and to follow him. There are so many people who think that they need to first, before they ever come to Jesus, clean up their lives, make themselves more presentable. It's as if Jesus says, hey, follow me. And we go, oh, I don't know if you understand how bad I really am. I've done this I have this in my past. I've committed all these crimes and all these sins and all these immoralities. Jesus, you don't want someone like me. And Jesus, in the midst of sin, in the midst of their sin, he calls them out and says, follow me. And Levi follows. What about you? You could be right in the middle of your sin right now. You could be right in the middle of an immoral relationship. You could be at work cheating cutting corners, stealing from your boss. You could be doing any kind of sin right now, and Jesus can call you and say, follow me. And if you sit there and think that you got to fix yourself before you follow him, you're never going to follow him. Why? Because you can't fix yourself. you got to come to Jesus, and he fixes you. He changes you. He gives you a new mind and a new heart. He gives you what you need. He cleanses you. He forgives you. Bring him your struggles, and you bring him your addictions, and you bring him your failures. You come to him. That's what Levi had to do. He came with all his baggage. He left his work, and he said, Jesus, I'm following you. He left everything. And it's amazing to see what Jesus did with Levi. Levi is so transformed that by the end of his life, he is and a faithful follower of Christ that's even penning the, one of the greatest pieces of the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. How much of a transformed life is his and could be yours, even if you're in the worst of sin right now, even if the things that you're doing in, in behind closed doors and the secrets of your own mind that no one else knows about, you right now can follow Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't help myself, but you can help me. He can save you. What happens? Levi now is following Jesus. Look at verse 15. It says, he reclined at table in his house. As he did that, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. Luke 5 makes it a little more clear than Mark does here that this is actually Levi's house that they go to. And Levi throws this party, really. He he gets a feast going. 
And Levi is so overjoyed about his new relationship with Jesus. I mean, you can almost imagine how giddy he is. Jesus called me. Jesus called me. Jesus called me. I, I was a, I'm a tax collector. How, how amazing is it that he would welcome me? And, and so he's, he's thrilled. And so he has Jesus over. And not only Jesus over, but he invites all his tax collecting friends. All the people who are in the dirty business with him join him. And they all come, and in verse 15, he actually adds to it. It's not just tax collectors anymore. It's tax collectors and sinners reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many that followed him. So the crowd is going, what in the world here? All these tax collectors and all these sinners. And here it is. It says Jesus is reclining with them. He's eating with them. I mean, this is a form of hospitality. To, to eat with someone, to share a meal is a form of love and intimacy. It's, it's the building of a relationship. We, we know that. Uh, when you have a meal with someone, you get to know them better. You talk about life. You share uh, some of good, God's good creation as you enjoy a meal. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Well, we know for sure that he's not endorsing sinful activity, right? He's not endorsing and approving a sinful lifestyle. That's not what he's up to. He's not agreeing. To eat with someone is not to agree that all that these people do is good. Rather, by going to Levi's house and by reclining with them and sharing a meal, you know what Jesus is doing is he's expressing the love in his heart that he has for sinners. What, what is he doing? Jesus is saying in sharing a meal, I care about you, guys. I'm interested in you. I want to know you. I want to hear from you. I'm, I'm not going to remain distant from you because I don't love you. Isn't it amazing what kind of man Jesus is? For, for most of us, we're, we like to hang with people that are like us. Like the pigeons hang with the pigeons. As soon as that eagle flutters in, the pigeons all scatter. It's not the way Jesus was. It wasn't that all the sinners scattered when Jesus showed up. It was actually the opposite. The sinners swarmed Jesus. Here they're all gathering under the roof of Levi. They all want to be around Jesus. What a big heart Jesus has for sinners like this, for outcasts, for people who don't deserve it. I can almost imagine a sinner like a tax collector, like these people mentioned here, they walk into the room of Levi's house their heads down. Jesus is there. They've heard about him. Everyone has. Maybe in that moment, there's a little bit of fear. What's he going to say to me? They're maybe a little skeptical. Maybe he's going to reject me. And Jesus lifts their head. He looks them in the eyes. He embraces them. He shows them love. He invites them to recline next to him. He serves them a meal. He talks to them about their lives. How humane is Jesus? How kind is he? It thrills my soul to think about the, the reality that many of these tax collectors and sinners all meet in heaven someday. That the heaven is filled with people who don't deserve Jesus. That's the only people who will be there, is people who have never done anything to deserve Jesus. Why? Because he loves sinners. He delights in them. He's listening to them. His big heart of compassion welcomes them in. He truly is a friend of sinners. 
The, the scribes and the Pharisees mocked Jesus. In Matthew eleven nineteen. 19, it said that the, the people watching Jesus and how he loved sinners, they mocked him and they said, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was meant to be a, a, an insult. He, he loves sinners. He loves tax collectors as an insult. And Jesus couldn't be more proud of that badge, a badge of honor. And it's something that we hold so dear. That is gloriously true, isn't it? That he is a friend of sinners we would have no hope if that weren't true. He's a friend of sinners. He loves sinners. That's demonstrated in the fact that he eats with them and he enjoys them. He welcomes them. He treats them with honor and dignity. Spurgeon, like no one else can explain, goes on to say that this love that our Savior has for sinners and demonstrating how he eats and drinks with them is just the beginning of contemplating the great vastness of Christ's love for sinners in a way that only he can say it. He says this, As for the river of the Savior's love to sinners, I have only brought you to its banks. You have but stood on the bank and dipped your feet into the, in the flood, but now prepare to swim. So fond was he of sinners that he made his grave with the wicked. He was numbered with the transgressors. God's fiery sword was drawn to smite the world of sinners down to hell. It must fall on those sinners, but Christ loves them. He, his prayers stay the arm of God a little while, but still the sword must fall in due time. What is to be done? By what means can they be rescued? Swifter than the lightning's flash, I see the sword descending. But what is that in vision I behold? It falls, but where? Not on the neck of sinners. It is not on their neck. It is not their neck which is broken by its cruel edge. It is not their heart which bleeds beneath its awful force. No, the friend of sinners has put himself into the sinner's place. And then... As if he had been the sinner, though in him was no sin, he suffers, bleeds, and dies. No common suffering, no ordinary bleeding, no death such as mortals know. It was a death in which the second death was comprehended, a bleeding in which the very veins of God were emptied. The God-man divinely suffered. Oh, he eats and drinks with sinners. He delights in their company. But let's go beyond that. Let's swim deeply into the love of Christ. What else does he do? He puts himself in the place of sinners to take upon himself the wrath that sinners deserve. He dies a bloody death on a cross. Why? So that sinners can be reconciled to God. He conquers that death rises from the dead. He's alive now and immense is his love for sinners. So great is his love for sinners that you, the worst of sinners, can come to him. In the midst of your sin, to come to him. And he'll forgive you, save you, transform you. Well, let's look on to what happens. As they, these people on the outside, they see the sinners being welcomed by Jesus. They're, they're absolutely incredulous that this has happened. Our second point here is the question of his accusers. Look at verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw what he was eating, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, 
Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's their question. Why is Jesus doing this? They couldn't believe it. Their conception of holiness included staying away from sin and sinners. They believed, listen, they believed that sin was fundamentally outside of themselves and the way that they resisted sin in pursuit of holiness was by separating themselves from people and from certain ways of life that they thought defiled. And to the degree that they could stay away from those things was the degree that they felt themselves to be holy and righteous. And so they can't fathom this Jewish rabbi Jesus associating with, which, uh, with so many sinners and outcasts. See, what was happening here is the Pharisees and the scribes, they're looking at the mirror of their lives, and they're seeing in their reflection something they like a lot. They're pretty happy about who they are. You can notice by their question, their question makes it pretty clear. They don't see themselves as the sinner. See that? By calling these other people sinners, they're seeing themselves as righteous. They've created categories. Those are the people who sin. Those are the ones who are bad. I, on the other hand, am not that. Therefore, I am good. I am righteous. I am holy. That's how they see themselves. They look in the mirror of their lives and they say goodness. They see nobility. They see righteousness. Now go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. When Jesus is coming and he's proclaiming the gospel of God in verse 15, he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repentance. It was a call for everyone. It wasn't just for some people. It wasn't just for some people that really were particularly bad. The call Jesus gave was for all people, all mankind. Everyone needed to repent. And what you say, what does that mean? That would mean admitting guilt. That would mean seeing in yourself a need of inward cleansing. That would include the confession of sin and the reorientation of one's life to Jesus Christ. That's repentance. But these Pharisees, they evaluate themselves. They go, I don't need to repent. I'm pretty good. I'm not like these sinners. Hold on. Don't just mock these Pharisees too quickly. The seed that blossomed in their hearts and turned into a prickly kind of self-righteousness is in your heart and in mine as well. We have the same tendency as these Pharisees. God forbid that we say to God, oh God, thank you that I'm not like those other guys those Pharisees. Let's tremble here a little bit and recognize that what the Pharisees are doing is something that we also are prone to do. I want to show you how this happens in four subtle, invisible phases or steps how by degrees, by unnoticeable degrees, we can become Pharisees. And we can become, listen, we can become Pharisees who are applauded and loved. We can become Pharisees who have all the external trappings of a great Christian. Because it's so subtle. Here's how it works. 
First, I'm unwilling to face my own sinful heart. But second, but I want to feel good about who I am. I'm unwilling to face my own sinful heart, but I want to feel good about who I am. So third, I embrace external forms of godliness. And then fourth, because I've done that, I feel like I'm doing okay. I convince myself I'm doing okay. We all begin down this path, and only by the grace of God do we not become full-blown Pharisees. But all of us face this. As I mentioned in the beginning, it all starts with this inability, this resistance. I am unwilling to face my own sinful heart. You realize this is happening in you? That we do this? This is, this is why we blame shift. You ever caught yourself doing this? That you blame a person for your sin? Oh, it's my wife. If she was a little more understanding, I would never have to act this way. It's my children. If they were a little more obedient, I wouldn't have to be so angry. They're causing my anger. We blame our circumstances. If my job was a little more secure, I wouldn't be so anxious. If my life was a little more normal right now, I wouldn't be so worried about things. It's these circumstances that are causing my problems. It's these circumstances that are causing my sins. It's these people around me that are causing my sin. We're unwilling to face our sinful heart, and some of the ways that expresses ourselves is that we are blame-shifting. It's the enemy. It's the devil made me do it. And sometimes the, the way we refuse to face our own sinful hearts is, not by even blame shifting, but by simply being chronically busy. Just filling your life with a billion things, moving from one thing to the next, never actually stopping to, to, to look and reflect on who you are before a holy God. We might feel a tinge of conviction and then move on to the next thing before the Spirit has any time to do its work in us. We can be unwilling to face our sinful heart. Well, what happens if we're unwilling to face our sinful heart? What happens next is that we still do want to feel good about who we are. And so we feel, we, we, we know there's an issue. We know there's problems. And so we're blame shifting, we're busy. And what we're also going to try to do is we're trying to feel good about who we are. And so you'll notice this in the way we sometimes talk about our sins. <laughs> we, we sometimes use euphemisms. You notice this? That this is happening every time we talk about sin as a mistake. Whoops, just made a mistake. Rather than owning it as a sin, we just call it a blunder. We just slipped, didn't mean it. It's just a mistake, just a slip of the tongue. Sometimes even we can talk about, use a euphemism where we're talking about sin, almost as if sin is some external enemy that comes on from the outside and we're battling it. Oh, I'm battling anger these days, really battling anger. And, and I understand what we sometimes mean. We could be biblical when we're talking about struggling with sin. I also know that sometimes we can be uh, excusing ourselves and creating a victim mentality when we are the victims of sin. That's how we can treat it. That, that anger is some external force coming into my life, and I got to battle it off. And perhaps a more biblical way to speak about sin in sinful anger would be to say, I am an angry man. I get sinfully angry. That hurts a little more to say. 
more true. And so we are unwilling to face our own hearts, and so we want to feel good about ourselves, so we start using language that minimizes the sins that we commit. We start using euphemisms that that tone it down and sugarcoat it a little bit. And then the, the third kind of phase, this is all so invisible, what we begin to do is embrace external forms of godliness. We want, to make, we want to make ourselves feel better about who we really are, and so we want to point to something, that we, something tangible, something we can, we can point to, and we want to say, oh, I'm okay because, because of this. I'm okay because I have a lot of Bible knowledge. Oh, that's a big one. I'm spiritually mature because look at all my theology books. Look at all the things I know. I know more than most people. I'm a mature believer. We can think we're mature by adopting certain habits. I wake up really early and read my Bible every day. I'm not saying any of these things are bad. Certainly Bible knowledge is not bad. Certainly reading your Bible is not bad. But what I'm saying sometimes happens is that we're resisting the inward working of the Spirit in our hearts. We want to feel better uh, about who we are. And so without dealing the sin, we just try to slap a Band-Aid on it by an activity, a a habit, a new thing that we're doing. Um, And and we're going to point to something that proves, no, we are spiritually mature. Look, I am mature. I memorize scripture. Look, I am mature. I have strong feelings about the Lord, sometimes even to the point of weeping. We can think that because we do certain things and uh, on the external, we adopt certain practices and feel certain ways that we are godly. We're just putting things on the outside. And fourth, what does this lead to? I convince myself I'm doing okay. I'm convinced that I am doing okay. I have ignored my heart sin, but since there was that requisite pain of conscience, knowing that I'm not what I should be, I, instead of facing the reality of my own utter depravity and sinfulness, I've clothed my problems with euphemisms, and then I've patched up my life with some external things that I do, and now I feel pretty good about myself. This is how you can have a church filled with people who read their Bible and listen to sermons and learn doctrine, and they're cold. They're cold-hearted. There's not a warmth of love toward God and people. It's because they've always just been adding external practices to their life and they've never really faced their fundamental heart issue. This won't happen to you this week. This will happen to you in the next 10 or 20 years. And in 20 years, you'll come to realize it's too late or you'll feel like it's too late because you'll feel like all these years you've been down a slow drift toward calloused indifference, toward cold-hearted worship. Doing okay. If in the quiet moments of self-reflection, you run away, from the conviction of the Spirit, we will fall off the cliff into hypocrisy. And the scariest thing about it is that we will become very good at putting on external evidences of godliness that people will applaud. 
They will be amazed at your discipline, at your habits. They will not see what God sees. All along, it was a refusal to face up to who you really are. And rather, it was an attempt to cover. Friends, if we go down this road, this will be the death of our church. It has been said that open rebellion kills its thousands and self-righteousness its tens of thousands. And you know what will be the defining statement of a church that's going down this path? The beginning smells of death among us. You know what it is? It's a simple statement. This is what we hear in a dying church. Two words. I'm fine. You ask someone how they're doing, I'm fine. How's your life going? I'm, it's fine. The inability to face reality will be the death of us. It is absolutely critical that we don't fall into this pharisaical mindset that sees sin as external to us, but recognizes that we are fundamentally sinners, that we can't clothe that in any kind of euphemism. The fact is that we are sinners who sin, that we still pursue sin at times, we get tempted by sin at times, and if we can't face that reality, we are on the first step down a slippery road toward full-blown Phariseeism. What do we do? To avoid this, what must we do? Here's what we do. Take your soul to task. Get in a fight with your sin. Own it for what it is. See it. Call it what it is. Name it. Call it out loud. Don't euphemize it. Don't clothe it. Don't sugarcoat it. Call sin, sin in your heart. And the moment you see it, the moment you feel it, whether it's in a thought or an affection or a temptation, identify it right then and right there and run to Jesus. Run to his grace. You and I are in need of daily grace, not just the grace that gets us to heaven, the grace that Jesus has given us to walk in this sinful world every day. We need that grace. See, these Pharisees, they didn't take their souls to task. They were unwilling to face their sin before a holy God, but they wanted to feel good about who they were, so they embraced external forms of righteousness. They convinced themselves that they were doing good, and once you convince yourself that you're a pretty good person, compared to all these other people, you will have no heart of love toward God, no warmth of love toward others. You will be right there with the hypocrites and right there with the Pharisees, able to see the sins in others, but totally blind to the sin in your own heart. That's what they ask because that's what they've done. They, 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 I, why does he eat with sinners? They've totally separated themselves from sinners. And let's see the response of Jesus. Those who are well, he says, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The people who have successfully duped themselves 
into thinking they are healthy and righteous are the people who miss out on Jesus Christ. But the people who see their sin, stare it in the face, feel a sense of sickness, of unhealth, of need, and they, in their sickness, cry out to Jesus, they are called to salvation, and they will be healed. Three implications before we close. One, the illusion that you're good is far more dangerous than your failure. The illusion that you're a good person is a far more dangerous thing than the ways you failed in life. You know what's worse than stealing money? Not stealing money and being pretty proud that you've never stolen money. You know that what's worse than lying? It's not ever lying and being so proud of your honesty. You know why it's worse? Because it's far more dangerous, because the pride, not only does the pride in there offend a holy God, but also what happens is that we become convinced that we don't really need God. If we're doing so good, we don't need him. The most dangerous place you can be in the entire universe is in a place where you don't feel any need of God's grace. Second implication is the sensations of spiritual sickness are helping you feel reality. To feel sick spiritually is not a bad thing. There are times when we feel guilt and we feel shame And what is happening when we feel guilt and shame is often good. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But sometimes we think that guilt and shame are such terribly bad things that we're going to do anything to run away from them. Uh, We're going to busy ourselves with something else. We're going to eat a big thing of ice cream and drown away our sorrows. We're going to binge watch a show. We're going to go on a hike. We're just going to try to forget about our bad feelings. What was actually God's intent in those bad feelings was to draw you to himself. It's not good if we're sick. If you got an infection spreading throughout your body and you feel fine, it's terrifying because you'll never go get help. The fact that you feel badly about sin is really good. And so if you feel shame right now, if you feel guilt for sin right now, don't resist those feelings. Let the process play, run its course. Let those feelings bring you to the cross where your guilt is removed because Jesus took it upon himself, where he takes away your shame and clothes you in dignity and his own righteousness. Let spiritual sickness help you feel reality. Lastly, last implication, how you see yourself is eternally important. How you see yourself is eternally important. Do you agree with 52% of evangelicals? Do you agree with 52% of evangelicals who say that they are basically and fundamentally good? If you do agree with them, you disagree with Jesus. 
because Jesus is calling all people to repentance because all people are spiritually sick. And if you think you're okay, you're buying the lie, a lie that the world's telling you. The world's telling you you're all good, just be yourself. You're buying a lie that you're, you're telling yourself that you're good when Jesus is saying you're sick. And as he says you're sick, he also is calling you. He says, like he said to Levi all those years ago, follow me. If you can't see your sickness, you're never going to want Jesus. But if you sense in yourself the spiritual ache of sickness, run to Jesus now. Hear his voice and don't harden your heart. Let the conviction draw you to him. Embrace him as your Lord and your Savior and your King. Friends, if you are a Christian, you want to grow old well. <laughs> you want to grow old as a Christian who deepens love of God and Christ and love for people. You want to become that way? Learn to face the mirror. Learn to humble yourself and call sin in your own heart what it is. And then, as you're doing that, you live in love of Jesus, for the one who took your sin away, who forgives your sin, who transforms you from who you are. Look to him. Don't overestimate who you are. Don't blind yourself to those issues. Face reality in your sin, but then look to the grace of Christ. As you grow old, you'll become like John Newton, who in his old age said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner. Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. So, Lord, I pray that you would make blind eyes see. I pray that you would peel away our masks that we've put on, that you would enable us in seeing who we truly are to, like Levi, run to you, turn away from everything our lives have offered us in place, our faith in your grace, the fact that you are gracious to sinners. May we stop hiding and instead come out into the light and receive the forgiveness and the healing and the transformation that you offer. In Jesus' name.